Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, everyone. It's Charles Marshall here again uh, for the West Coast Foreclosure Show. It's November 2nd, 2017. Good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast, and good evening to those of you in the East. In this episode, I will have Investigator Bill Padalo once again joining me, and we will be discussing what I call Rescission Revisited. We're going to have a, uh, an over, overview look at some rescission case developments and get into some of the nuts and bolts of how borrowers can possibly use these developments or, or find another way to make rescission a useful tool in the tool chest that we, that we need on our side, the anti-institutional side, to protect homeowner rights. I'm broadcasting live from Southern California, and the West Coast Foreclosure Show is broadcast on the first and third Thursday of each month with a focus on West Coast developments. And here we are, the first Thursday of the month of November. Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show on alternate Thursdays. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated. And you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, when we look at rescission and what the current state of matters is in that area, it's important for everyone to understand, listeners and otherwise, that rescission is always effective upon mailing. And upon the mailing of the rescission notice, that's the legal event. That's a word to focus on here. There's no after behavior, after activity, after lawsuit that's required. And this recent 
one one recent case that we're going to discuss today uh, out of Illinois relates to this principle that the only requirement for rescission is to simply mail the rescission notice, the the notion pre-Jezinoski that the the rescinder needs to do some other behavior like file a lawsuit, which was what was being said prior to Jezinoski. And remember, Jezinoski came down, now we're talking several years ago, and it it was a it was a unanimous decision by the US Supreme Court, Jezinoski versus Countrywide. And it made absolutely clear that to rescind a mortgage loan, all you needed to do was send the rescission letter. And if the other side objects to what you're doing, they're the ones that need to bring in a legal action, not you. And there's a big standing issue regarding this that we would like to get, let's put it this way, when I say we, I'm talking about the broad foreclosure community on our side who's trying to fix this problem, who's trying to set right years of abuse from the institutional lenders and servicers, that what, what one aspect of this whole matter is getting courts to recognize that we don't need to file a lawsuit. The other side needs to file a lawsuit. And given the nature of rescission, so often it will be based on claims, which again, these, these claims do not need to be aired, but the rescission will be based on claims that the wrong parties are, are trying to collect on the note. The wrong parties are foreclosing. That means those parties have a standing issue. So when those parties sue to try to challenge the rescission, if that's one way they try to deal with it legally, then the argument from our side is they don't even have standing to challenge the rescission. Uh, Bill, great to have you back on again. Pleasure as always, Charles. Thank you. And I know you have your own rescission situation. I think it'll be useful for the listeners to have some backdrop on that, kind of an update on where you're at with that currently, and then we can thread that into some of the recent case law here. Yeah, sure. I, I'd love to give an update. Um, the Ninth Circuit is due to make a decision, it would seem imminent, because I've been fully briefed since, I would say, uh, this past spring. So uh, with the issues that are being reviewed, uh, they're pretty straightforward. So I'm expecting a decision uh, being handed down here uh, any time now. But um, as, as some of the listeners may know or those that have been following me, um, my rescission case was one of the first to get some traction and attention uh, right on the heels of the Jezinoski decision because, as the federal judge noted in my case, I didn't sit on my hands in filing uh, my declaratory action um, for uh, asking the court to uh, simply uh, declare that um, I had rescinded within the three-year period. Um, I can give just a a quick little reminder on on the details of the case, but I had a Washington Mutual loan that I originated uh, in the 
fall of 2006, and uh, I started having disputes uh, with Washington Mutual uh, shortly after, and it led to my rescinding, uh, dropping my notice in the mail uh, to Washington Mutual in uh, March of 2008, I believe. And uh, Washington Mutual received that rescission and acknowledged it, but they came back and conditioned me, uh, denying the rescission and uh, giving me a payoff quote, uh, essentially saying, you know, we're not going to allow the rescission, but you're going to, you know, here's the payoff if you want to pay us off. Well, uh, at the time, you know, pre-Jezinovsky, obviously, um, the the law was pretty much in their favor to the the fact that you know I had to tender if I wanted to even entertain any type of a rescission situation. So um, I really didn't have what I believed is uh, any claims or rights at that point because tendering for me at the time was an impossibility. It was a, a very large jumbo size loan, and um, uh, coming up with that kind of money when the economy was all of a sudden going into a, a turn was going to be too difficult. So um, on the heels of Jezinoski. Uh, I simply filed a declaratory action asking the court to simply uh, acknowledge the effect of my rescission, and that being uh, I had the the notice uh, that I mailed it, that they received it, that they didn't do anything. They acquiesced, essentially, by not contesting and challenging within 20 days, Um, but they also conditioned and denied it. And I simply asked the court to declare my rights, that the uh, deed of trust uh, was void um, as as of the moment uh, I rescinded and dropped that in the mail. So uh, the court had essentially agreed with uh, the analysis and did a very nice job of analyzing Jezinoski and uh, denied uh, J.P. Morgan Chase's motion to dismiss in the in the action and uh, pretty much said if if that's the case if I dropped it in the in the mail, and I noticed them, and they didn't respond or whatnot, then it was effective upon mailing, and I needed to do nothing else. Well, uh, lo and behold, I, Chase came and, you know, uh, threw everything uh, in the kitchen sink trying to find some sort of a defense or a way to wiggle around this, uh, you know, effective res- uh, the effect of the rescission. And um, ultimately, uh, the court reversed its own um, analysis in the motion to dismiss and uh, granted summary judgment to Chase, of which now is on appeal. So, um, I'm, I'm confident that you know, in looking at some of the other cases, and there haven't been a lot of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there doesn't appear to have been a, a lot of cases coming out published, like in the Ninth Circuit, for example, um, uh, you know, addressing this issue. But the ones that have have seemed to be acknowledging. Uh, and following suit with uh, with uh, Scalia and the just in the Supreme Court on this, so I'm optimistic that um, they will simply just apply the law as as mandated by the by the High Court. So um, it's nice to talk about this a little bit. I've been getting lots of inquiries over the last uh, year or two uh, since I got that opinion in the case and. And uh, though I'm not an attorney, and I try to tell people I'm, I'm not an attorney, I, I I can talk about some of these issues um, based on my personal experience. But uh, r- really, uh, folks need to talk to a licensed attorney about some of these uh, nuances to this. You know, um, a lot of people and uh, that follow Neil's blog here, um, 
get get into some of the buzzwords like consummation and things like that. And they come and they ask me a lot of questions regarding whether or not their loan was consummated, and and a lot of a, a lot of real technical questions. And um, they're kind of hard to hard for me to answer. However, my role um, in investigating uh, a lot of these cases, especially uh, in California, um, I'm looking at issues that play into table funding. And uh, as you well know, Charles, table funding is. Uh, under the consumer finance laws or, or, or lender finance laws in California, table funding is, is illegal, which brings up uh, a number of issues, whether or not the contracts that were executed um, were ever valid to begin with, and, and whether or not uh, there's anything to rescind if it's ultimately deemed that the, the loans were table funded, for example, and the, and the uh, contracts are void uh, from the outset. So I want to get a little clarification from you, I think, and the listeners will probably want to get some clarification as to um, how that plays in and those nuances and whether or not um, you strategically want to try at this point, you know, rescission strategy on something that you're kind of counter arguing against yourself if you're saying that the validity of the contracts are void. Um, when it comes down to the table funding issue in particular, then I, I, I plan on having an, another show, uh, ideally relatively soon, addressing that issue and how it and how it intersects with precision. But the broader point, and and it is a really good question. On the one hand, if you claim to be rescinding a loan which rescission by definition makes the mortgage instruments associated with a loan void, is that actually effective, one could make the argument, if the underlying documents you're attacking, you collaterally or otherwise claim, either in the same form or in a different venue, that those documents are void. I think a number of rescission decisions have come down wherein the underlying irregularities associated with the loan closing, uh, refinancing, et cetera, that those decisions, in effect, if there are irregularities that could potentially make the underlying transaction void, from the analysis that, that one can, can glean and pull out from, from the, I mean, the developing, there is some developing case law in this area now. There are certainly cases that are going up on appeal and a number that have been decided, but I would say it's still a legal area that certainly has not been played out. And the case law to be made in, in, in this area is still there, and that makes it quite a legitimate vehicle to deal with uh, foreclosure issues. But the bottom line, to close the loop on, on the question you were just asking, is it appears that you can essentially argue in the alternative. It appears that you can claim that the underlying transactions are void for independent reasons, those transactions associated with the loan event in question, 
which again was often a refinance in the 2006, 7, 8 era and even beyond. And while claiming that, you can still rescind that same loan. That, that those while analytically incompatible, that does not seem to have become a big issue yet. And the other side may grasp that issue at some point and try to make something out of it, but I haven't seen that yet. Uh, Another aspect uh, to all this is, particularly in the non-judicial foreclosure arena, I think rescission can be used as as part uh, part of an array of options to deal with the, the legal implications and, and the legal reality of a foreclosure. And again, I think it's critical to understand that rescission is an event. It's not something bigger or more profound than that. Of course, the implications and what happens after the rescission, now, yes, that can get quite complicated. And that's where specialized analysts and and those with some kind of a specialization in the area, whether they're attorneys or not, can can weigh in on these issues. Uh, there's someone in Southern California I've been discussing these issues with, which I may be able to, to have on a future show. Um, in terms of the Illinois decision, now that decision, uh, it, it's in the public record. Uh, an official uh, appellate court decision, Beneficial Illinois versus Parker. And that was actually decided in December of last year. But it's very, I would say, current still for, for what's going on in the rescission climate. One of the fundamental holdings in that case is that, and this is, of course, is simply following the law, but it, it is encouraging to see it affirmed and confirmed. This also shows how rescission can be used in judicial foreclosure states because this particular uh, plaintiff, so to speak, he actually counterclaimed in a sense. Uh, What happened is he was subjected to a judicial foreclosure. The loan was originated in 2000. I I don't have the exact year, but let me put it to this way. When the loan was originated, he stopped paying within a year. Within less than another year, he was facing a foreclosure lawsuit. And then within another year after that, he rescinded. So he actually sent his rescission letter, which the factual record shows was crafted by his attorney. That's fine. It's even sent out by his attorney because he was in litigation at the time. And he sent it with one month left in the three-year window going back, looking back to when his, in this case, refinance was was executed. So the loan docs were executed in, in a certain year in the mid-2000s. He then is subject to a judicial foreclosure lawsuit, one of his legal responses was to have this rescission letter sent out with a month left before the three-year window expired. And then he 
he countersued and put in affirmative defenses in his case within two months after that time. Now, the lower court dismissed everything on his side in terms of counterclaims, affirmative defenses, et cetera, claiming that, oh, it was time barred. And because they looked at his counterclaim as, as essentially and his affirmative defenses as trying to affirm his rescission. So analytically, they said, well, that's one month after a three-year window. Therefore, that's not valid. And so this, uh, this rightly was all undone by the court. The, the court here found that he just needed to rescind within the three-year window, which he did. Now, what's frustrating about this decision is I still think the the problem with all of this is the three-year statutory period should not run from when the loan was supposedly executed or the, the legal term is consummated. Of course, if the loan wasn't properly consummated, then that that statutory period should be told essentially indefinitely so that even if one were affecting the, the rescission later, that rescission should be effective. I mean, analytically, that makes a lot of sense when the consummation itself is being challenged. The big challenge for our side is to get the courts to agree with that. And there is still, I think, a large architecture of case law to draw on ultimately you know, related to rescission and related to some other cases, related to TILA violations, and then using an administrative process, which we can talk about on a future show, to set up a potential lawsuit to enforce rescission. Because, yes, absolutely, rescission is an event. You don't need a lawsuit. On the other hand, it's kind of dead air out there unless it's enforced. If the institutional players will not recognize your rescission and then they go after you or bring some other kind of legal proceeding, you really have no choice but to to bring your rescission into a legal forum to essentially get a declaratory judgment and an injunction related to that declaratory judgment. So you could have a legal action that's based only on that rescission seeking declaratory relief that the rescission was valid upon the mailing of the, of the same rescission notice. Remember, Scalia said pretty much that that could be on the back of an envelope. And, and consistent with that declaratory relief, you then have an injunction to prevent, let's say, a non-judicial foreclosure proceeding from being visited upon you or being executed against you if it's already ongoing. So there is a lot to unpack with these issues and decisions. There's one other case I think that's noteworthy that I wanted to get to on today's show. And that relates to uh, a case with some investors. Uh, could you tell the uh, could you tell the listeners about that a bit, Bill? Uh, yeah, I'm a little I'm a little foggy on that one, and still getting the details on it. But uh, before I do that one, I have a question though for you, Charles. I I have uh, sure. a very common question that um, folks ask me is, 
and and I agree with Neil's analysis and when he says, listen, this is an event, okay, and in, and for my chair and position, it's an event on title as well. And there's a lot of people who have been um, uh, rescinding loans uh, and uh, dropping notices to, to their servicers or whatnot, and then they've proceeded to go to the county records to uh, make that event memorialized in the public records on the title of the property to, to say uh, whether, whether or not a court has ever intervened with the fact that there was a rescission that they wanted in the title records. Now, I'm hearing that um, there's pushback from, from certain counties um, allowing borrowers who rescind to file some sort of affidavit or, or, or a document uh, showing that rescission. And then there's other jurisdictions that are signing off and collecting the money and, and recording it into the title record. So what, what, what's your view or what are you hearing on some of the uh, jurisdictions uh, either accepting those recordings or not? Oh, I'm finding in California it's county by county almost. And if, you know, if there's an attorney uh, essentially shepherding the uh, the filing of, of, of these, you know, into the land records, often that will sort of get a waiver and they'll let it through. But I, I do find it interesting because under recording law, I mean, there's a huge variety of what can be recorded. And it's, you know, the recording laws are written in such a way that it's not really the recorder's job. It's not really the, the clerk's job representing the recorder's office to vet the validity, to vet the legitimacy of what's being filed. I mean, there is some purview and some vetting related to the form of what's being filed. I mean, clearly there are kinds of legal documents that could be filed hypothetically in a recorder's office that would be, be completely outside, you know, even land records issues. Clearly those aren't going to be filed. However, with this, it's essentially a legal claim on the, the titles of the property. And I think in that sense, it's almost like a list pendants. So exactly, exactly. Analytic, yeah. yeah, analytically, there's no question that it should be accepted on that basis, because when there's that cloud on title, the public needs to know and deserves to know. Investors need to know. Even renters need to know if the property at issue is is going to have the same ownership. If it's going to be subjected to um, a rescission unwinding, then clearly buying the property while that's in process could be a very risky uh, risky endeavor. Well, yeah, and I and I, and you know that you know as you well know, we all know that that so far the courts have been very hostile to rescission cases, um, especially if a rescission occurs outside of the three years of what they allege is the consummation point. Um, they don't. Uh, like the whole issue of uh, consummation in itself, which is an issue of fact that still needs to be fleshed out. But um, I still believe that at some point the high court is going to have to revisit this, and they're going to have to, you know, come down with a, the, in a very uh, direct ruling like they did in Jezinoski to clarify some of these things. But I still 
uh, firmly believe it's black and white, that a rescission is effective, whether it's right or wrong, from the moment you mail or drop it in and notice. And on those grounds, um, I think if you document these things, um, and, uh, and I, I, I think it's a great idea, uh, in my view, to uh, record this against the title to the property until some of these issues are eventually readdressed by the high court. Um, you, you, we, we just don't know uh, what may come about in the future, but I still think it's an important piece on title. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for that reason, the recorder, recorder's offices around California and around the country should be should be accepting these documents. So I, I do intend to, to have additional shows on this whole issue because it's, it's so involved. And I, I still think it's an area where homeowners can get, you know, some potential traction and, and what they're trying to do and, and defending themselves against the predatory lenders on the other side. I mean, the whole foreclosure situation is is just continuing and and going on and on so i really appreciate you being on again bill we've come up to the end of our show and i you know very much look forward to having you on again soon and thanks charles hopefully with good news from the ninth <laughs> yes i would i'd love to hear good news thanks for listening to our broadcast we hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the